0: Well, this time, if you would please take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 26. And I will read verses 47 down through the end of the chapter. And then after that, Pastor John will come and preach to us. This is, word, this is God's Word, beginning in verse 47. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thus the reading of God's word and his people said, Amen. Amen.
1: Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have given us this great account of the life of Christ, the Messiah that you sent to us. Father, help us to more fully understand what's taking place in this passage. And how we can learn from it and grow from it. And we ask that you would send forth your word and power. And that you would use it to cause us to be the Christians that you have called us to be. Would you sanctify us through your word, Father? And would you magnify Christ in every heart here today? For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, this has been... A long day for Jesus. He's probably been up close to, if not more than 20 hours. Now some of you have done that before. Right? Some of you pulled some all-nighters, if it were, as it were, or 24-hour shifts, especially you people in the military or in law enforcement. So you know what it is, to long days. This has been a long day for Jesus, but it's not over yet. During this time he has celebrated the Passover with his disciples during which he instituted the Lord's Supper he also gave them extensive teaching in John's gospel we have the that big discourse that Christ uh, gave to his disciples he had the teaching of humility the you know, the washing of the feet, you know, because the disciples were arguing that very day, who was the greatest, right? And so Jesus had taught them about humility by example. And also he had given them the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. He was trying to comfort them, told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. And he went on to promise that he had to go away and he had to go away to prepare a place for them. But he wouldn't leave them alone. He would send another, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And then he labors much in prayer over his disciples. John chapter 17. We call it the great high priestly prayer. Who was he namely praying for? Mm-hmm. He's praying for his disciples. But guess what, brothers and sisters, you were included in that prayer. Amen. And he said, I'm praying for all those who will believe on their word because of what they tell them about Christ. And so he labors much in prayer over his disciples. And then we see him laboring much in prayer over his mission when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, which we looked at last Lord's Day. How he was in trouble, deep, troubled spirit, anguish of soul. He, as Luke tells us, sweat as of great drops of blood. Uh, He had to be strengthened physically and emotionally by an angel. He, he His disciples had failed to watch and pray with him when he needed them the most. But there's no time to rest because his day is not over. You know, we, we think about D-Day in World War II which has been called the longest day. We could go back even farther than that to to the battle that Joshua and Israel was fighting at conquest of the the promised land where, where the sun stayed back. That was the longest day. I submit to you this day here was the longest day. Because this day has more importance in it than any other day in the history of this planet. Because this is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. And saving his people. And now we look forward to that next great and glorious day. When our history will be finished. As we learned in, in Sunday school this morning. That day of judgment. Which for the believer is a day of great joy and gladness. But for the loss is a a, a great and terrible day as the Bible describes it. Yes, Jesus is now going to complete his earthly mission, the redemption of his people. As hard as he's had it so far, it's just going to get worse. Physically, emotionally, but most importantly, spiritually. Because the spotless Lamb of God is going to become sin for us. It is the day that He becomes a curse for us. That the man who who never sinned, ever, who is the second person of the Holy Trinity as divinity and, and as humanity, a perfect man, And one, together, going to become sin. We can't imagine that because (laughs) all we do is sin, it seems like, right? I mean, sometimes we sin so much that we become desensitized to it. Sometimes we sin so much that we no longer look at it as sin. So we can't imagine being perfect and then being made sin. But being made sin for not just one act of disobedience, but for every act of cosmic treason done by God's people for all history. And so yes, this is the longest day. This is the darkest day. But this is the most glorious day as well for the believers because of what Christ is going to accomplish. It is my hope and prayer that God will speak to our hearts and minds today. I pray that we will all have a deeper love for Christ. As we watch him accomplish all that he came to do. As we watch what he endures for our sin. For our filth. I pray that we will learn from Peter's mistakes. And that we will never be guilty of denying our Lord. We will look at today's passage in the three sections that it's laid out in. The first section, the betrayal and arrest of Christ. The second, Jesus tried before the Sanhedrin. And the third, Peter's triple denial of Jesus. You know... The different Gospels give the different accounts of this, what took place here. And as we look at the arrest of Jesus, I want us to first look at John 18. Because I want it to be in the context with what we're going to read in Matthew. Now I know last week I read through the Harmony of the Gospels. I didn't plan to do that this week. But I just wanted to point this out. John chapter 18, let's look at verses 3 through 8. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, so that's the context of this band coming up to Jesus and his disciples. Notice the power in the word of Christ. That's another, I don't know, a lot of people don't look at that as one of the great I am statements of Christ, but I think that's one of the greatest, right? I mean, in his statement was revealed his divine power. I am he. And what happened? What was the reaction of the crowd? These, these tough soldiers and, and burly men and these armed thugs coming out to arrest Jesus. What was their reaction? They drew back and fell down. They were in the presence of the holy. And for, a, for, just, a, for just a minute they were overcome by it and then Christ once again veils that from them lest they be destroyed and if they were destroyed then God's will is not taken place will not be come to fruition here so that's that's the context we we have so when we get to Matthew 26 we see Judas and he came up to Jesus at once and said greetings rabbi. And kissed him. And I I would venture to say. He was one of those that fell to the ground. Just a minute ago. And then quickly recovers. And continues his foul mission. To point out Christ. To the arresting party. Luke tells us that Jesus questions Judas. Luke 22.28 Judas Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Here in Matthew, we simply read, Friend, do what you came to do. I I think there's a message in that, that Jesus is telling Judas, Judas, don't think I'm not on to you. Don't think I, I, I don't know what you're doing. I think might have been a final warning from Christ to Judas. Judas, what you're doing is wrong. I know what you've come to do. Do what you've come to do. And Judas goes through with it. He gives Jesus a kiss. He addresses him as teacher rather than Lord. Rabbi, he says. And betrays the Son of Man. He had already made this prearranged signal with the soldiers, with the, the people that were coming to arrest him. The one I kiss, that's the man sees him, right? You know, there have been, when you think of Hitler, the name Hitler, what, what do you think of? The Holocaust, The, the, the just the destruction that took place uh, at, at his um, command during World War II. Have you ever met anybody that, that has named their child Hitler? No, that name lives on in infamy. I, I, I have never met anybody that has named their, their child Judas. I've never met anybody like that. Why? That name lives on in infamy. What Judas dis, does here to, to a friend, to his teacher, to one he's followed for three years, during the ministry of Christ, the, the one that he's witnessed do many miracles and great things. This act of betrayal and, and Judas now, I mean, you've heard that term, right? Somebody betrays somebody else? Oh, he's a regular Judas, isn't he? Right? I mean, the name is even derogatory now because of this vile act of treachery. We as Christians, we, we would never think of naming our children Judas. We recoil from the thought, don't we? Just because of the connotations that come with it. Now there was another Judas among Christ's disciples whom we believe wrote the book of Jude. <laughs> and even with the stigmatism with the name Judas, he, he, he used a different name. He, he took on a different uh, a meaning of that name. You know, I, I'm not going to be called Judas. I'll be called Jude. Maybe it went from the the Hebrew to the Greek uh, pronunciation of the name. And so Judas, one of Christ's 12, betrays him and hands him over to be arrested. But we see something happen here. Maybe emboldened by seeing the crowds fall down initially... One of the disciples mounts a counterattack. He's going to attempt to rescue Jesus. This brash action is in keeping with Peter's boastful assertion, is it not? Even if I have to die with you, I will not forsake you. But you see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of those gospel accounts name this assailant. And if John didn't explain it to us, we would... We would just be left to speculate of who this attacker was. But John tells us in John's Gospel, it was, it was Peter. John 18.10 Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. See, John also gives us the name of the person that was injured. The high priest's servant. Why is that important? Malchus was probably the one in charge of the band of arresting soldiers. He was the, the, the delegate, if you will, or the, the representative of the high priest. The high priest, you remember what Paul was doing, or Saul of Tarsus was doing later on? Who, who, who did he get his authority from? The high priests. To go and arrest and, and, and persecute Christians, right? So Malchus had gotten his authority from the high priest to lead this band of men. And the rest, the one that Judas would point out to them. And I think that's important. Notice Christ's reaction to Peter's rescue attempt. Then Jesus said to him, verse 52 of Matthew 26, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? See, Jesus tells Peter that force is not the way out of this situation. Force will not rescue Jesus from this situation. As a matter of fact, Jesus is saying there's no way out of it, only through it. And it must be so. It must be so. That scripture might be fulfilled. I cannot do anything else. remember jesus had said he had lost none of them right what do you think would have happened to the disciples had they continued their resistance they probably would have been slaughtered right there because what were we told about this group of men that come to arrest jesus they had temple guards soldiers men with weapons clubs they were armed how many weapons did the disciples have They had two swords, right? We were reading Luke's gospel. What chance would they have had? Jesus said, no, Peter, if you continue this, you're going to perish by the sword. Now, down through the ages, there's been arguments that Jesus here is condemning any violence of action uh, with the church. And there has been much violence wrongly done by the church down through history. But Jesus is not uh, prohibiting uh, Christians from serving in the military. From serving in law enforcement. No. He's just telling Peter, right here, right now, this is not the way out of this situation. This is not the will of my Father. This is not, uh, this is unjust shedding of blood, if you will. Because it's not God's will. It's not what's supposed to be done here. I know there's people that disagree when they argue uh, uh, that Jesus is saying we can't serve in the military. We can't, you know, do any of this. But I I think that's out of context of what's taking place here at this immediate time. Jesus is doing the will of his father. He has finished praying and agonizing in the garden. And we saw last week that the results of his prayer was one. A perfect calm resolve to accomplish his father's will. It was set in stone in his heart and in his mind. He was going to obey. Nothing on heaven or in heaven or on earth was going to stop Christ from completing his mission for his father's will. To redeem his people. Not Peter, not Peter's brash attempt to rescue him. Nothing. But, but more importantly, Christ tells Peter here, look, force is not the way out of this. But if it were, I have something far greater at my disposal, Peter, than your two swords because the force is the way out of this, I have divine help. I could petition my Father, and He could send more than 12 legions of angels. Now, we all quick quick to do the math. Uh, 72,000, right? I don't think that was what He's saying. We, we know a lot of times numbers in the Scriptures are symbolic. What Jesus is saying is, look, the fa- if I ask my Father for help, Whatever he sends is more than adequate to accomplish the mission. How many angels would it take to to take care of that crowd of men? Probably one. Okay? Probably one. But you know, those men aren't by themselves. Those men are part of a satanic crowd. So it's not just human beings that I believe are after Christ now, but it's Satan and his demons. And Jesus says, if, 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 if we've got to get out of this with a fight, I have plenty of help. My father, if it was his will, would take care of this problem, sending myriads of angels. No, Peter, force is not the way out of this. The only way out of this is through it. To drink the cup that my Father has given me to drink. But notice one thing too that Matthew doesn't tell us that Luke does. Luke tells us something that none of the other gospel accounts tell us about this incident. And that's Jesus reached out his hand and healed this man's ear. This man who was leading the crowd to arrest him. Jesus knowing exactly what they would do to him. Wow. Could you do that? I don't think I could. I mean, if you're coming to do me harm, (laughs) the last thing I want to do is put a banding on you. I don't have the power to heal. But Jesus says no, and he heals this man. Does it change this this man's mind? No, he he still does what he came to do. He, He arrests Jesus, they bind him. But we see Jesus willingly submits, submits himself to the hands of sinful creatures the creator of the universe, the creator of everything that exists, willingly submits to wicked creatures whom he's created. Jesus knows that this is his father's will. He says that in verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What are the scriptures? but the very word of God. And then Jesus, his prediction, which really wasn't a prediction, it was a prophecy, right? And back in verse 31, it takes place here. Notice at the end of verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. And we're told in a different gospel account, this is so that his words, when he said he would lose none of them, he did because I think if they would have stayed around, at a minimum, they would have got arrested, probably tried with him, guilty by association. But they fled, just as he had predicted, just as he had prophesied. They all ran, left him on his own. Verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders Had gathered, you know their hatred of Jesus is so very intense. I mean, just we we see things on the news, right? We see how how bad and evil people can be, don't we? How just hateful and spiteful they can be. How how hateful these crowds are in our day. Claiming that they have the rights over their own bodies. That they ought to be able to do whatever they want. Well, how come we don't see crowds like this protesting in front of the government because we have to wear motorcycle helmets? It's my body, right? But you see the satanic involvement in the abortion movement and these people that support it. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Look at the hatred that these people had for Jesus was so great. And I think that, Ryan, you hit it right on the head. These people are so filled with hate because human beings are created in the image of God. And it's a lot easier to go after a human being that is defenseless than someone who can stand toe-to-toe with you and defend themselves. This is an illegal trial. This is against Jewish law, probably against Roman law too, who they were under as well. It it was illegal by Jewish law to hold the trial at night, especially a capital case, a case that was seeking the death penalty. And there were only three... uh, venues that they could hold these trials at. And, and one of those was not the high priest's home. So this, on, on different levels, is, is, was an illegal trial. But that, that shows you their sheer hatred of Christ. But there's also something else at play here too. What is that? Their fear of the crowds. That's why they did it at night. That's why they did it w- without the crowds being able to witness this and see this. By the time the crowds know anything about it, they can blame the Romans. Right? Because by the time the, the majority of Jerusalem finds out about it, it's the Romans leading him through the cities, through the streets to the place of execution. So they can take care of their this this Nazarene. They can they can finally rid themselves of it and, and they can in their eyes be blameless. So if the crowds get all up in an uproar, Well, guess what? It's the Romans that did this. So they had this illegal trial at night. Not only was it illegal, they were not interested in getting to the facts. They weren't interested in the truth. Look what we read in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false tests. They, They weren't looking for the truth. They were looking for lies. Because they knew they couldn't convict him on the truth. And ironically, it will be the truth that convicts him. In their eyes. So they're looking for for people to come forward and tell lies. uh, So that they can have an excuse to give him the death penalty. The problem was... In order to sentence someone to death, they needed at least two corroborating stories. They needed at least two people to come forward and say the same thing. He's guilty of such and such. Yes, I saw it. He's guilty of such and such. Well, there you have it two witnesses. Death. But they couldn't even get that. (laughs) You know, in there, I mean, they've been plotting this for some time now. And you would think, like Jezebel, she knew how to do it, right? Back in the Old Testament. She wore a nameless vineyard. She said, okay, you and you, you come forward and say this. That's all they had to do. They could have did that to you and you. Because we're plotting this, right? If, if you're looking for false testimony, why not just say, okay, I designate you and designate you. And this is what you're going to say. End of story. But they couldn't even get that. They were... They weren't concerned about the truth, but they weren't very organized either in their hunt for the lies. Jesus had well spoken of these religious leaders earlier in his ministry. In John chapter 8, we read, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. What are they accomplishing here? Well, we know that they're accomplishing God's will, But they are being driven by the devil because their intentions were evil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. They weren't looking for truth. Well did Jesus tell them they were of their father the devil. Why? When he lies he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's what they were seeking to convict Jesus with lies as William Hendrickson points out this wasn't a fair trial matter of fact it wasn't a trial at all it was a plot to commit murder plain and simple it was a plot to commit murder they had nothing and Pilate recognizes this we'll see when we get to that point there was nothing that really he did that was deserving of death but they were going to have his blood one way or the other Then finally, two people came forward with the same testimony. This man said, verse 61, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, Jesus didn't say that. They misconstrued what Jesus said. Jesus says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But see, they said, no, he said he's going to destroy the temple. Well, that, that could be considered close to blasphemy because you're, you're going against the house of God, right? And Jesus, he didn't say anything. The high priest demands an answer. Aren't you going to answer this, this charge? Aren't you going to say something? And then we don't know if it was by divine intervention here or the priest had been thinking about this all the time or or just popped into his head he asks the fatal question and we think it's by divine intervention God put this in his head to ask because the answer now is going to be what convicts Jesus in their minds for whatever reason Caiaphas blurts out the question that was probably on everyone's mind placing Jesus under the highest oath possible. He asks, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now, he makes a very clear declaration to the highest Jewish civil and religious authorities here. Before now he had revealed this truth to whom? A Samaritan woman, right? His disciples on the side. You know, he had let them know who he was. They had they had professed that he was the Christ, the Son of the Living God. But who else had he revealed himself to? I mean, he had given veiled revelations through parables and things like that. But he hadn't really come out and told the, the religious leaders that this is who he was. Now you would think, at least in their minds, when the Messiah comes, what's the first stop? Well, he's going to come to the high priest because I'm God's you know, mouthpiece. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the go-between between God and man. So when God sends the Messiah, he's going to come to the high priest So here I am. I'm here to get working. I'm here to get busy. But he had not revealed himself to them. He had cautioned, matter of fact, several times that people don't reveal this. Don't reveal this. Don't reveal that. But now he says, you have said so. You know, and our English translation doesn't really do Christ's statement justice here. It is better understood, you have rightly or correctly said so. The New King James renders it, it is as you said. In other words, you've said it correctly. Not correct because you said it, but correct because I am. And of course, in Mark's gospel, he simply answers, I am. There is no longer any doubt in anyone's mind who Jesus is claiming to be. But if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't answer enough, Jesus continues. And this is what's going to put the nail in the coffin lid here. It would be one thing for him to say, yes, I am the Messiah. But now he's going to drive that point home and, and, and give us a further look at the Messiah. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This Son of Man reference points to Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, and with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and language, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is the Son of Man reference. And I'm sure that's what they were thinking this son of man is, is none other than God, right? He's identifying himself as with God. He's making himself equal with God. He's an everlasting dominion, everlasting rule, a, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And they would understand him. They, they understood his I am statement. Remember? Before Abraham was I am. What was their reaction then? They wanted to stone him. They understood who he was claiming to be. They didn't believe it. But here now he very clearly identifies himself with not just the I am of the burning bush but with the son of man prophecy and Daniel's book as the, the one, the Messiah whose kingdom is eternal. But he's also saying something else. You, you religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, you're sitting in judgment over me now. I'm in your power now. But there will come a day when you will see me in the ultimate seat of power and I will be coming to judge you. That's what he's telling me. And they understand that. Hence their reaction. The correct reaction should have been they should have fell on their faces in repentance. They should have put dust and ashes on their heads. They should have been fasting and praying and weeping before the Lord. But they didn't. They didn't have the correct response to that. And so finally Jesus is convicted. They finally have what they're looking for. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Aha! This is a we got gotcha you moment. We finally got you out in public blaspheming well we know that it wasn't blasphemy because Jesus was telling the truth he is God and he will come in judgment and he will be seated in the ultimate position of authority that's why he can say at the end of this very gospel all authority is given to me on heaven and on earth right In their warped, twisted minds, they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. They understood perfectly well what he had just said. He was claiming himself to be equal with God. They finally had what they needed to pronounce the guilty verdict and to say that Jesus deserves to die. This brought them one step closer in their vile plan to rid the earth of this troublesome Nazarene. But since they were under Roman rule, Roman law did not permit them the authority for capital punishment. So it kind of makes you, it begs the question, what were they thinking all those times that they were picking up stones to stone him? That's just going to be one of those, uh, in the spare of the moment, we just were so incensed that we just, it just happened. Well, we'll see something like that when they stone Stephen, right? That That's a, a, an exception, not the rule. But here... They wanted it to be legal. They, wanted, they didn't want any doubt in anybody's mind. You know, if we just stone him now while it's still nighttime, what are the crowds going to say? What are the crowds going to say? No, we want this done the right way. So what do they do? They prepare to take him before Pilate because they wanted him executed. They, didn't want, they just don't want him dead. It's the manner in which they want him to die. See, they want him to die with the most horrific, shameful death that was known to them at that time. Crucifixion. And Christ knew it. Christ knew he was going to be crucified. He knew that all along. He told that to Nicodemus, right? And even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. (laughs) He's talking about his crucifixion. And so these people, in their hatred of him... They're just playing out God's will. Playing out God's plan. You know, Peter will say that in his sermon later on in the book of Acts. You know, he was put to death by the hands of you sinful men. But it was the will of God. It was the pre-planned will of God. It was God's doing. Does not excuse their guilt. So once they pronounce him guilty, now they're going to cruelly mock him and mistreat him. You know, we're told in one of the gospel accounts that they actually cover his head or, or blindfold him. And that's when they start smacking him and say, prophesy, prophesy, tell us who hit you, Messiah. If you are the Christ, go ahead. And they spit on him, just degraded him. Just all manner of vileness, which really speaks to his resolve as the Lord of glory to do his Father's will. That's perfect love. We don't have perfect love. We would want revenge. And if we had it in our power to, to, to stop the abuse and to, to take care of those who are abusing us, we would do so, wouldn't we? that Jesus was perfectly resigned to do the will of his Father. He would not. He would not. It must be so. And these were in order that Scripture might be fulfilled. I will read a couple of these. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people and that's a question it's a prophecy but it's a question who who would consider that since he's dying he's dying for the transgressions of my people you know, Caiaphas had said earlier, it is expedient for one man to die, right? Talking about Jesus and Nazareth, so that the whole nation doesn't incur the wrath of Rome. And we know that he said that because that idea was put in his head. It was a, it was a prophecy, right? It was expedient for Christ to die. Why? For, for his people. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They made mouths at me. They wagged their heads. Psalm 22, 6 and 7. These are some of the scriptures that Christ is fulfilling here. That's being fulfilled by these wicked men. And Christ's obedience. This not only shows a a wonderful love for mankind that that he puts up with us. But it shows his pure devotion to God's plan. And I will say it again. This resolve that Jesus now has was a direct result of his prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you don't think prayer is necessary, dear ones, you're in for a lot of disappointments. We might have to face trials and tribulations, but if we rely on God's strength, we will get through them. God can give us this kind of resolve to be faithful to his will. The right of the Hebrews says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he did all of this. He endured this for us. And this ain't even the worst part yet. We've not gotten to the worst part yet. We're just now in the physical part. And even when we look at the crucifixion, we're, we're just in the physical part. It is not till he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at that moment? He is the vilest creature in all creation. Because he has the sins of all God's people on him. See, we haven't got to the hard part yet. And yet he's still enduring this, this mistreatment. And let's quickly look at Peter's denial, triple denial. Back in verse 34 of this chapter, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, even though he fled with the rest, as we read reading John's gospel, at least two of the disciples followed the crowd to, to the high priest's home. One we know was John. Uh, he was known to the high priest, so he actually got Peter admitted into the, the courtyard there. Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and in another gospel, we are told he's, he's curious. He wants to see what will be the outcome of the matter. And so he's there. And a servant came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Hendrickson writes, Peter has been floored. The unexpectedness and boldness of the servant girl's incriminating statement catches him off guard. In spite of all his loud and repeated promises of unswerving loyalty to Jesus, boasts made only a few hours earlier, he is now thoroughly frightened. One might say he panics. I don't know what you mean. And when he went out To the entrance another servant girl saw him. This big bad Peter with the sword ready to attack an armed crowd. But he cowers back from two servant girls. Another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Have you ever heard? And I know you may even have said it, but you've heard, uh, uh, especially kids, right? Did you eat the cookies out of the jar? No. Did you eat the cookies out of the jar? No. I swear. And and then and, and when when it gets really when it gets really intense, I swear to God. You know, Peter was doing that. I, I swear, I don't know the man. He's he's. Making an oath. But it gets worse because in his third denial he 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 calls down a curse as it were on himself. You know, you, you see in the old testament a lot. God do so to me and more if I don't perform such and such, right? That's what I have in mind when I when when I hear this, that he, he does this. After a little time. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. And that's what I think of all those times when you hear that in the Old Testament, right? He's invoking a curse on himself. God do so to me if I'm not telling you the truth, right? That's a dangerous place to be, Peter. I would submit to you, we ought not ever invoke God's name in, in, a, in an oath. Amen. Okay. Unless, you know, you're, you're doing so in front of a court of law or something, right? That's the oath administered. But we, we don't need to invoke God's name. As, as Paul says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to swear to God if you're a truthful person. You notice most of the time when people say that, it's because they're lying. You ever, you ever, you ever notice that? And Peter hears lying. He's denied three times that he knows Jesus. And each time it's a more vehement denial. I don't know what you mean. I don't know the man, I swear. God, curse me if I'm lying to you. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Verse 74. Peter remembers Jesus' prediction that he, Peter, had so boastfully said would never happen. Luke records it like this. And this makes more sense now when you read Luke's rendering of this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This was probably when they were leading the Lord out. Okay. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And their eyes met, I'm sure. Because Luke says... And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Once again, Jesus' predictions and prophecies are correct. Peter's reaction? He went out and wept bitterly. What Peter did was inexcusable. He was one of the inner three disciples. He had the privilege of seeing Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was the one who had made the divinely revealed declaration that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what Jesus had previously said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Peter is not in a good place here. Not only had he denied a friend, but he had also denied knowing the Son of the living God. And in his denial, he may very well have excluded himself from the kingdom, at least in his mind. And we recall the words that Christ has said. But we're told later on in Scripture for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And I'm, I'm sure that's what Peter had going on here. Godly regret. He truly was sorry that he had done this. He was truly repentant of it. And Christ will later on in John's Gospel on the Sea of Galilee restore Peter back into fellowship. But he also appears to him the day of the resurrection. I think, as is, is starting that, that process, because Peter's now he's going to carry this guilt until Christ exonerates him of it. But we can learn from his actions. Peter, uh, this is described by J.C. Ryle. Let us mark this story and treasure it in our minds. It teaches us plainly that the best of saints are only human and have many weaknesses. A person may be converted to God, have faith, hope and love towards Christ, and yet be overtaken in a fault, and have awful falls. And trust me, if you think you're immune to that, you're mistaken. Raoul continues, It shows us the necessity of humility, so long as we are in the body, we are in danger. It points out to us the duty of charity towards erring saints. Did you hear that? We must not write off people as graceless reprobates because they occasionally stumble in error. We must remember Peter and restore them gently, Galatians six one. We're not perfect, dear ones. And the moment you think you are, you will fall. In way of conclusion, in our passage today, we have considered Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his arrest. We have considered his unfair trial and the abuse that he suffered at the hands of these wicked men. We have considered Peter's triple denial of knowing Christ. Throughout all of this, Jesus remains faithful to his mission. He perfectly fulfills the will of his Heavenly Father and in doing so fulfills the Scripture's prophecies about the suffering Messiah. In the midst of all this unfaithfulness and open faithlessness, the Christ remains faithful. Dear ones, just some closing thoughts. I'm trying to make this brief. Let us learn from our Lord. No matter what trials may come our way, let us be faithful to our King. Let us rely on His strength to get us through. Let us keep the faith and never deny Him. Never deny Him in thought. Never deny Him in word and never deny Him in action. You're called a Christian. That's not a meaningless name. What is the world looking for when they hear you're a Christian? Are they looking for how holy you are? Or are they looking for how imperfect you are? They're going to hold your faults against you because you call yourself a Christian. If you name the name of Christ, you're a representative of Christ. So let's not deny him in any way. When tempted to err, let us recall what great price our sin has and what our Savior endured for it. Do you think of that when you're you're in the midst of a sin? What Jesus paid for that sin? You know, if we were quicker to think of that, we would be a lot less prone to give so easily into temptation. Let us learn from Peter's failure that we are never immune to sin. We must in all humility avail ourselves of the means of grace that God has given to us so that we might be able to resist the evil one. The book of James, James writes... Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the formula. Submit yourself to God. First and foremost, submit yourself to God. If you omit that step, you will not be able to carry out the second step, which is to resist the devil. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not because you're strong, but because you are submitted to God. God as Christ submitted himself to God in the garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. I want you to listen to the words of this hymn. We're not going to sing it because we're not familiar with it. I hope one day we can learn it. It's a wonderful hymn. uh, Hymn 191 in the hymns of grace. If you never just sat down and read through a hymn though, you ought to. You really do. There are some wonderful, wonderful songs in here. This song reads, Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hands uplifted high, despised the mention of His grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. But an eternal counsel ran. Almighty love arrests that man. I felt the arrows of disgrace and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy for my soul appeared, which led me on with smiling face to Jesus Christ, my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell, enough to sink the world to hell. He bore it for his chosen race and thus became their hiding place. Should storms of mighty vengeance roll and shake this earth from pole to pole, no flaming bolt could daunt my face. For Jesus is my hiding place. And it's this Jesus that we should want to know more of. That we should serve more, more faithfully. Every day. Let's pray. Father, for what our Lord has endured on our behalf, we are truly grateful. Saying that, Father, we even realize our gratefulness is flawed. And so we pray that you would cause us to be grateful to the point of obedience. That you would strengthen our love and desire for Christ. Because of seeing him as the altogether lovely one. The one who suffered so much for our sake. Father, help us to see ourselves for who we are. Help us to truly abhor sin. And especially the sin in our own lives. Grant us your great grace of repentance, Father. And daily, teach us more about Jesus. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Can we stand together, please, and let's sing our closing hymn, More About Jesus, 676.